Hello and welcome. My name is Brent Weaver and this is the Digital Agency Show. The podcast that goes behind the scenes with today's top agencies and entrepreneurs. I am really glad you're here. And once again, it's time to transform your business mindset. Hey, what's up, digital agency owners and podcast listeners. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to ask you a quick question. Are you currently stressed out, cash crunched, or fed up with your business? If you feel this way, you might think that you have a lead generation problem, or maybe that it's the area you live in, or maybe this market has become too competitive. Maybe you think that your business can't be turned around, and I want you to think again. In my many years of experience, I can tell you now that it's something much deeper that you're likely not even aware of yet. It's like a client who comes to you saying they need a website or Facebook ads or maybe a mobile app developed, but they don't even realize the deeper challenge or opportunity that's blocking them from success. Now, if you'd like to find out what your deeper challenge is, then I want to invite you to apply for a YouGurus strategy call where we'll dig into those underlying issues and get you moving forward like never before. The aha moments will shift the way you think forever, and you'll finally get the answers as to why your business hasn't taken off. The number one most important decision to rapidly grow your business starts by booking your strategy call. Go to yougurus.com slash apply to start your application process for this free call. Once again, go to yougurus.com slash apply to get started. All right, let's introduce today's guest. Hello, hello, podcast listeners, digital agency owners. You guys are here for yet another episode of the Digital Agency Show. I've got a wonderful guest here today, a topic that is very near and dear to my my business heart about some things that we talk a lot about here at YouGurus and in our programs. Uh, David C. Baker is an author, speaker, and advisor to entrepreneurial creatives worldwide. He's written five books, advised over 900 firms, and keynoted many conferences in over 30 countries. And his work has been discussed in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Fast Company, Forbes, USA Today, Business Week, Inc. Magazine, uh, and he currently lives in Nashville, Tennessee, and is recently the author of a book called The Business of Expertise, How Entrepreneurial Experts Convert Insight into Impact and Wealth. So I think we have a lot to learn today from David C. Baker. Welcome to the program. Thank you. It's really good to be here. I'm I'm excited that the overlap between what I like uh, doing and talking about is just perfect for your audience. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be with you today. Yeah. And uh, from our pre-interview, there was this one uh, thing, this, 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 uh, uh, you said you, you grew up uh, with Mayan Indians. Uh, and I just, I'm going to throw that out there. We're going to just start there because I'm not sure we, we can talk about the business of expertise, but I want to hear a little bit more about this Mayan Indian thing. And, uh, and let's, let's start there. It's, it just sounds a little weird, doesn't it? I'm like, I almost hardly believe it myself. It sounds like something you'd say at a bar if you're hoping to uh, get somebody interested in talking to you, but it actually was true. My, uh, I was born in Michigan, but when we were four, um, my, my parents went to Costa Rica to learn Spanish for a year and I got dropped into a, a Spanish kindergarten. That's where I learned Spanish. It wasn't traumatic at all, oddly enough. And then, uh, when I was five, we went to this little, uh, tribe of Mayan Indians in the highlands of Guatemala, where my par- parents did medical missionary work. So I didn't live in the U.S. till I was 18. Uh, it was very primitive, no 
no electricity, no running water, no roads, no stores, that sort of thing. And it, uh, it, it, it's just such a fascinating part of my life. I'm so grateful for having lived in that world. I'm a U.S. citizen now, and I love living here, but I also feel like yeah, I want to be a world citizen. Came to the U.S. and you know went through the normal schooling sort of stuff and then wound my way to the doing what I'm doing now. But it was – and I go back there and visit, and nothing's changed except uh, there's this cell tower in the center of the village, <laughs> and, and I'll – all these mine Indians are, they skipped the wired generation, right? Sure. So now, and they're all running around with these little cell phones. And, but otherwise it's pretty much exactly the same. And I go back there just to get grounded about every year or twice a year. And, uh, I'm really grateful for the upbringing. It was a really interesting life. That's really fascinating. I, I mean, just how bold your parents' decision is. I, I know that just having, uh, an eight month old right now and a three year old, it's really easy to get caught up in this U S kind of, uh, I don't know if it's quite the rat race, but you know, what preschool are they going to go to? Are they going to get the very best education? And you know, yeah. are we in the right neighborhood? And, and there's all yeah. this kind of stuff. And your parents kind of <laughs> said, nah, we're going to, we're going to hang out and, yeah. and do missionary work and yeah. that's going to be its own education. Yeah. And they'll figure it out. Right. It's not we don't have to do everything perfect for these kids to be to have all the opportunities they want. In fact, you know, I I, I had correspondence school. It was called Calvert School. And my mom didn't help me with it. it. I was just on my own, which was great because you get these kits from the U.S. and there's four courses a year and, and you could do follow things at your own pace. And, and I remember finishing school early, like in two to three months, and then I'd have the rest of the year just to explore the countryside on a motorcycle or on horseback. And that it's like, there's so little connection between formal schooling or the perfect upbringing and being successful in life. That's been a real lesson for me. It's like, yeah, we'll figure this stuff out. We, we, we're so consumed with doing everything so perfectly, especially when we think that sort of our lives in the U.S. are the center of the world and, and nobody else has it quite figured out like we do. I don't know. This has nothing to do with probably what we're supposed to be talking about, right? But I do find it really interesting to think about how the context of our lives is so different and it doesn't have to be so carefully uh, I guess scripted. It can, it can, you can just let it flow, right? I, I mean, even, I don't know what your educational background is. But mine had nothing to do with what I'm doing now. And more and more people are doing, they're experts in areas that have nothing to do with their education. That was certainly true for me. Uh, and I, you know, st I started an agency. That's how I got into this. I ran an agency for six years and, and then started advising other firms through really interesting set of circumstances. But you just, if you're, if you're intelligent enough and you're disciplined, you can make life work. That's, that's been, that's what I've discovered over the years anyway. Yeah. And, it, you know, you said it, it might not have anything to do with what we're talking about, but I, uh, I, I disagree. I think that a lot of creatives are very consumed with perfection and they think that business is supposed to be carefully scripted and that creates a lot of mm. fear and obstacle for getting, you know, getting, making progress in your business or getting traction um, I was just working with a client the other day and, you know, we, we had come up with a solution to 
create this, you know, very simple kind of checkout process for some of their low dollar services that were very frequent and weren't really worthy of creating a contract and getting signatures and invoicing and deposits and all that kind of stuff. And so then when they created this, this checkout page, they realized that they weren't super happy with their website. And before they knew it. They were thinking, oh gosh, if we're going to go live with this, we need to revamp our entire website. And I was like, no, 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 no. This is, this is about a simple, elegant solution to a very basic problem. Let's leave that other problem over there for you know a little while. But I think that that comes up for people a lot in, in this space of um, helping creatives grow their business, that they view the business as they view a lot of their creative work, which is they should, you know, it should be perfect. It should be pixel perfect. Um, and how, how uh, do you, how do you yeah. come across that? I'm sure with your, I mean, you've been doing this a long time and, um, like, how do you see that come up with your clients? I, I do. Now that you say it that way, I do absolutely see that. I, I wrote an article one time about, I forget the title exactly, but the idea was that we're caring too much about the wrong things. And the sense was that we, I just kept noticing that my clients, that is agencies, including digital agencies, cared more about the work than their clients did. And to some extent, like I understand that there there has to be something pulling the quality of the work you do higher all the time, but you, it just flat wears you out to consistently care more about something than your client does. And the context for that observation on my side was that it seemed to contribute more than anything else to this over servicing of client work because if we if we decide when we can stop perfecting something for a client, if we follow the client's cue, they are okay, especially the qualified clients, they are okay with us stopping before we feel like we can stop on their behalf. And so what's driving us forward is caring more about the work than the client does. And they. what's worse is the client doesn't even notice the difference between what's plenty good enough and what standard we feel like we need to apply to that work. But apart from just the work itself, I think it, it, it does permeate the client relationship itself too. For instance, if, if the client pretends that there's some, something really desperate that needs to happen and there's this sense of urgency about it and you say, well, I can't make that call and I have a meeting here, you know, whatever that conversation is like, and um, and and you you stop for a second. You realize, oh, I'm being a lot more flexible than they are. But this is their problem. It's not my problem. And and so you you just back off a little bit and say, well, listen. Until this becomes more important to them, it's not going to be more important to me than it is to them. Or like phone calls. I I do this. I, I shouldn't be giving this secret away. But I <laughs> I ask clients to call me at the appointed time because I. I want to make sure this is important to them, right? And unless they call me, now I made a mistake yesterday. I missed a call, which I'm embarrassed about. But if, and if they're more than five minutes late, then I just don't take the call, right? It's, it's just interesting to see how we, I think we do need to set our lives up a little bit so that we care more about how much the client cares about something than how much we care about something. Yeah. Yeah. I like that, uh, that tip. Well, uh, having your clients call you as a way to, make sure that they're vested. Um, so let's, right, you, right. you know, your, your recent book, uh, the business of expertise, 
And, um, you know, I think that this idea of positioning, finding the right position, et cetera, is so important because I feel like a lot of people that get into uh, really any services business, you know, you have a skill that can be applied to pretty much anything. That's kind of the entrepreneurial d- dilemma is you, you can do anything as the entrepreneur. You, you know, the, the world is your oyster. Uh, but at the same time, if you if you choose to dilute yourself and spread yourself thin and not really become an expert or known for anything, uh, then it's it's hard to build that momentum where you're not having to constantly reinvent yourself with every single client project. So, uh, what what before we get into some of your your specific uh, direction on kind of the platform or how people can do this, um, what really made this idea of the business of expertise um, emerge as something that you needed to write about and and develop a position on? I I had been outlining the book and just throwing thoughts into a an Evernet Evernote uh, folder for a long time as as things came to me and I was thinking about writing something a little bit more philosophical partly because uh, the previous books I'd written especially number 3 and 4 were they just bored me honestly they they were good books but they were they were sort of like wikipedia entries you know they were just like full of uh, insight organized really well in bullet point form and how to's and so on. And, and it just lacked the passion that really was moving me recently. And so it seems odd, I know, to think about combining the notion of passion with expertise, but I feel really passionate about it. I was talking with uh, a columnist of the New York Times recently about the book and and uh, he said to me, you know, you should have titled this book, The Economic Value of Pattern Matching. And that got me really thinking about how how th- this this notion of pattern matching relates so closely to what we do as experts, because what drags us forward frequently are two things. Uh, one of those is just our absolute love and flirtation with opportunity. We just love any opportunity we have, whether it makes sense or not. And the other thing that drags us forward is this commitment to uh, just things that are interesting, that uh, that promote variety in our, our business pursuits and so on. And neither one of those really make us better experts. And so I wanted to write this impassioned manifesto, so to speak. I don't really call it that, but it's really what it is, a manifesto for people who sell their thinking for a living. And how, because they're they're really good at typically helping their clients position themselves, but but they're inside their own jar and they can't read the label for themselves. And, and so they needed, I felt like they needed somebody on the outside and I wanted to be that person who could help them think about how to position their expertise because they couldn't read their own label. And what were some of those mistakes that they were making? And what's this notion of pattern matching? What, how does this relate to being less replaceable in the marketplace? How do you actually command a price premium in a very specific way? So as I was writing the book, it, it really did take uh, some unexpected turns. It became about 40% of the length that I was intending. I became a lot more passionate. I took quite a bit quite a few more risks in the process. And it really is designed to, uh, I don't know, just inspire people who sell their thinking for a living, realizing that these people are changing the world. And I was really excited to sort of be on their side during this book. 
Let's talk about pattern matching because, um, and I just, I'll tell a quick little anecdote of something that came up with a client of ours recently that, you know, as, as we get our, our clients uh, to specialize and niche down, one of the benefits that I see is that they can start to kind of package their services uh, to right. solve a, a similar problem, you know, as a productized service. And the, the, the rebuttal that I got was, well, if we productize our services, isn't that a commodity? And... You know, my and maybe I didn't have uh, as elegant of words as saying things like, "Well, you guys have done the high value service of pattern matching in your market, and that's you know why this is valuable for your market." But can you define what pattern matching is for our our, our listeners? Sure. So, and the illustration that came to me as I was writing this book was thinking back to the movie A Beautiful Mind, where uh, where John the mathematician was was in the room and and the code is streaming down the wall and none of the people within the CIA can figure out what this code means and all of a sudden he sees the patterns that's that's the essence of pattern matching but but underneath all of intelligence is really pattern matching which is why we can make some assessment of the intelligence of young children who can't read or write yet may may not obviously can't write uh, but can't read they can't even speak in some cases. We can hold up different images and the child will either do a simple pattern matching exercise by pointing to like duck, duck, goose, and they point to the goose and it doesn't fit the two ducks. So that's reverse pattern matching. Pattern matching underlies all intelligence. So uh, the, the idea is that until, and this dovetails very closely with what you just said, you can't be an effective pattern matching unless you're positioning put you repeatedly in similar circumstances. So like in my case, if I'm working with one agency after another, a new one every week, I am in similar situations because my positioning has dropped me there. That gives me the opportunity to compare notes. So I'm not working with a medical doctor the next week and an architect the next week, other professional services branches. I'm working with people that, that have similar situations. That enables this pattern matching. And now... And also to, to dovetail with what you were saying, I, I don't think it productizes your services at all. Um, pattern matching essentially is bringing uh, repeatable insight to a very unique situation. And you are going to end up with a different recommendation in each case, but there's no need to bring different tools to the solution. So we have a toolbox and when I come into a situation, just like when your clients go into a new situation, they are going to pull the same tools out of the toolbox, and they're not going to find anything new at this unique client situation. What they will find is a unique combination of dysfunction. And because they have been able to apply, they've solved a lot of these problems before, it's not this huge stretch for them to solve the new one. It's a smaller step. And that's the value of the economic value of pattern matching. And pattern matching only happens if you're well positioned, which means that you are in the same situations repeatedly. That that's how I that's how it unfolds in my mind. One of the things I, I hear from people that have yet to specialize and develop a strong position is they fear that if they do this, they will get bored. They, uh, you know, oh, right. I'm just, I don't want to have to build the same thing over and over and over again. And, and I think what 
I've heard from you is that, and what I've experienced personally, is that uh, this much more complex problem of pattern matching kind of emerges as, you know, where are you seeing the lowest common denominator? What are the things that uh, maybe in the tool development stage, even when you don't yet have that toolbox of things to pull from to solve for every, uh, to, to use in these situations, that part of your initial work is developing some of that uh, that toolbox, creating those things that you can then reuse with each of these people, which is actually some extremely challenging work um, and sometimes is the work that requires the most amount of insight, uh, at least in my experience. Yes. Yeah, I agree completely. And I don't think, uh, you know, you don't, if you quit learning, if your specialization means that you kind of stop learning, then I buy that argument about it being boring for sure. But I'm really more, and people do change as they get older. They, uh, the variety becomes less important to them as a factor and competence becomes more important. And so that it sort of takes care of itself as they age. But but you don't until you empty your head and create that system like you were just describing you don't have additional room in your head i know this doesn't sound very scientific but you don't have additional room in your head to develop even new ways of looking at things and building on building layer after layer uh on this foundation of your positioning and so if you it's like you don't until you get into this new room you have no idea what else you're going to learn and that's really really exciting to become such a deep expert i think of it that like this i'm speaking in front of a hypothetically i'm speaking in front of a crowd of of 3000 people and i'm the keynote and there's a mic in the center aisle and anybody can come up and ask questions and the whole audience hears the question and and so on am i nervous about the questions that people will ask, or am I confident and eager, it, not in an arrogant way, just in a confident way, am, am I eager to hear these questions because there may be something a little bit different than what I've normally thought of, but it's going to be something that I'll be able to answer. And that's, to me, a very personal definition of competence. And that's exciting to me. Competence is very exciting. In fact, I, you know, all of us have at least I have. I've tasted competence and I've tasted incompetence and I never want to go back to the incompetence side. I mean, there's always a little bit of incompetence. That's how you that's how you you stretch yourself. That's how you keep learning. But how far over the cliff do you want to lean, right? You you just you know, there's just something addictive about competence and and that to me competence is another word for expertise and and I love experts. I and I I just want to think and write to help them, to help them do see their role in the world better and to be excited about continuing to learn. Yeah, I love that uh, analogy of being able to sit in a room and, and have you know a, an audience ask you questions. And maybe that's even just a, a litmus test of whether or not you've kind of achieved at least some level of positioning that somebody is willing to put you on stage in front of their group of you know like-minded or like yeah. industry people uh, and, and be able to field questions like that. And um, you know, I think a lot of agency owners are wanting to be in, you know, I hear people say, well, I want just inbound leads. I want people to contact me. And, uh, you know, I mean, how, how cool is that to be in a position where 
a room full of people is looking at you as the you know the wizard with the answers and and if that's not happening to you then maybe this importance of positioning is is the next step for you so in thinking about that uh you know maybe in this this uh, so far in in the first few minutes we've convinced people that they should have a position or a specialization uh, to try to develop themselves as an expert and if i have not yet done that what's your recommendation on how to get started mm, so yeah, great question. I, I do think it's going to, that positioning is going to emerge from work that you have already done. So we're not going to invent an expertise out of thin air. So it it's going to be very easy to, ch- well, it's not going to be easy to choose, but we're not going to have any trouble figuring out which one, you know, the, the, where it's going to come from. It's going to come from some work that you've done. The, the, difficulty in positioning is not identifying the possibilities. It's saying no to the ones that you're not choosing. That's the really difficult part of positioning because it really is more of an exercise in saying, no, I'm not going to pursue this work, which is going to free me up to be a deep expert over here. Uh, People who don't regularly have abundant opportunities are either new to the field, like they're just getting started, or they're just flat incompetent. And otherwise, which most people fall in this otherwise category, they're going to have all kinds of opportunities. Fast forward a couple of decades, and let's say they're they're being a little bit um, reflective, and they're sitting at a bar talking with a friend, thinking about their business life, and they look back on it and say, man, I, you know, I, I could have been a lot more effective than I have been over these last couple of decades. What What's the difference? And you know, if we pause the conversation there and make an observation, the difference is not they lacked opportunity. They had plenty of opportunity. The difference is that they didn't make courageous choices and say, no, this is what I'm going to be. Like I have this list, personally, I have this list of about, I don't know, 18, 19 things that I that I kind of could have been if I'd wanted to, or nah, some of them I probably couldn't have been, but they would have interested me. So my life is really about regretfully saying, nah, I'm not going to be that. I'm going to be this. And so that's the rub in terms of choosing a positioning, but it is going to flow from something that you've done. Next is you, you, I think the simplest test that you would go to from there would be to look at the number of competitors who have articulated their positioning similarly to what you are envisioning for yourself. And I like to think of a, an a lower and an you know a lower and an upper range there in terms of the number of competitors. If I can't find at least ten competitors for the positioning that I'm contemplating, then it's probably not viable. Now that's not super scientific. You know, it's possible that there are five competitors and it's still viable. But if there aren't many competitors out there already for your positioning, the message you should hear from that is that it's not viable. Now it could be that you know you're the you're the leader and you're the front runner and you're inventing something but it's so unlikely it's not really worth playing those odds. So that's the lower end about you know 10 competitors. If you find more than about 200 and I get a little freaky nervous around that number frankly but if you find more than 200 then you've got to narrow this thing down because you cannot own something where there are that many competitors and What's crazy about this, I'm sure you've noticed this as well, is that people who do positioning 
for a living for their clients are so bad at doing this for themselves, motivated by all kinds of strange things. But that's how I would start. It flows from something you've done. Uh, needs to be no no fewer than 10, no more than 200 competitors. And then, you know, there's lots of other tests that we could apply. But that's where I would start for sure. And, and I, I, I just want our, our listeners to really hear what you've just said, David, because there is this notion that um, maybe you know, if I don't find any competitors, that that's a good thing. And, 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 you know, it's actually not like we want to see that some people have at least gone down this path a little bit before. So you're not having to create a market or, um, you know, invent something that maybe is not there. Cause I think that's, that's very risky. And I, I hear people all the time saying, you know, they run into a couple of competitors and they get really discouraged. Like, Oh, somebody already made this service. And they somehow correlate that just because somebody has the the service or the position out there, that they also have all of the market, which is really uh, not necessarily true. I've seen a lot of people that do exactly what we do, but they they don't have any. You know, they they really don't have any customers. They just have a website that says they do it. Um, and I can see that that you know, for for agency owners, sometimes that becomes very discouraging. And I have to really coach them to say, no, this is a good thing. Um, you know, that there are people out there that are already doing this. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Can we, and, and often I don't think you need to have a, an adversarial relationship with your competitors either. I've, I've tried to, it was a scary decision years ago, but I've tried to have a very collegial relationship with my competitors and learn from them and, and refer business to them when it's not a, a good fit, because, you know, the better positioning I have, then the fewer competitors there really are because somebody else who does work like I do, like a Tim Williams or a Blair Inns or a Drew McClellan, you know, they're, they're, you know, they have a different approach. They're, they're a better fit for some people. Like why, why am I freaking out about this? There's plenty of work for people. So let's say for instance, I've, uh, I've looked back at the work that I've done. Um, and I've, I've maybe found, uh, a, an idea that it could be my position. I've then done some research and I've found that there's not 200, uh, people in this space. There's maybe a, a sweet spot of 15 or 20. Um, now how do I, you know, what's, what's next for me? We, we'd want to make sure that we, that we understand that whether the positioning that you, you're, you're playing with this tentative choice you're making is horizontal or vertical at this point. If it's vertical, there are certain advantages and, and also of course for horizontal by vertical positioning, I mean, it follows an industry classification. So it's going to be financial services or it's going to be healthcare or tech or something like that. And it could generally, it's going to be more narrow than that, but that's the idea of vertical positioning. Horizontal positioning follows either a practice area so like we're doing uh, e-commerce websites or we're doing conversion rate optimization, or it could be a demographic. We're, we're doing marketing work or digital work for uh, boomers or something like that. So those would be the two large categories. And then you have to think about what are the primary advantages of each. The, the primary advantage of a vertical positioning is that it's really easy to find your clients. And then there are some secondary ones as well. Uh, One would be that when your client leaves you and goes some, leaves your, leaves the firm that that they're working with and they're your contact, say they're maybe their CMO or something, 
and they go somewhere that somewhere else, then they're usually going to take a job in the same vertical and frequently they'll take you with them. So that's, that's one advantage. Another advantage is that your prospects tend to hang around the same water coolers as in conferences or read the same blogs and so on. And finally, vertical positioning is generally more highly compensated. There are a few exceptions to that, but generally more highly compensated. Okay, so that's the vertical. Horizontal positioning, the advantages are these. And the first one is by far the biggest advantage through the eyes of the person making this this positioning decision, and that's that there's more variety. And, and that's where most digital firms, most marketing-related firms start because of that. They like the variety of doing work for lots of different industries. They feel like they have to they, they will have to turn down fewer things. There'll be more room for opportunity for them. Then, of course, they default frequently to vertical positioning because they can't find their clients. And that's the, you know, the biggest disadvantage of horizontal. So biggest advantage of horizontal, they can find their clients. Easily, excuse me, they, they get a lot of variety. Second, they're more immune to an economic downturn in a particular space. So if they're working in, say, real estate or development, um, if if that industry goes down the tubes, then their agency is going to struggle. Uh, another is that there are fewer there are fewer conflicts of interest with horizontal positioning, because one of your clients doesn't care at all that you're working with a client that's unrelated to them in another vertical, and so on. And the final one is that you can sometimes work for much larger more sophisticated, wealthy clients if you have a horizontal positioning. Because horizontal positioning doesn't carry the expectation that you will be the agency of record. So you might be a CRO firm, and there is a massive development, application development firm that's working for, like, say, IBM or something. But they hire you to do just CRO work for them, and there's a there are tight boundaries about what you're doing. You're not going to threaten the other agencies that IBM is using and so on. You're there for a very specific purpose. You're not going to encroach on the other agencies. You're working for a very big client with a lot of money. So that's the, that would be the next uh, thinking process that you would work through typically. Now, once I've chosen uh, a position, whether that's a horizontal or a vertical or you know some kind of subset of maybe a combination of the two, um, and I, I've done that, now how do I get people in that space to recognize me and come to me and say, you know, how, how do I get people to put me on the stage so they can pepper me with questions and I can <laughs> feel confident? Right. Yeah. Well, uh, that. So we'd be taking the positioning then and we'd stepping into the lead generation process. And here, it's actually a lot more complex because we have so many more options. I've tested about almost 30 different options. And we want to keep the plan really simple, typically, and and start with a few basic things that everybody would have and then branch out into two or three unique things that would vary from one firm to another the you know the basic stuff you've got to have the right website you have to be generating enough content that's indexable by google google to help with the inbound side of things even if google doesn't discover you is you still got to develop that content because it's the only way you're going to figure out what it is you think about something figure out what your point of view is and then you know the specific lead generation tactics i like to think of these uh just along a spectrum so 
if if we envisioned the absolute easiest but most effective lead generation plan, it might be that you are invited to keynote two conferences a year and you write a well-received book every three years. That would be, my friends, sufficient for all of your lead generation needs, uh, coupled with you know the basic website and so on. Now, to some folks, that's not necessarily accessible for whatever reason. They may not be at that point in their career, or they may not have access to certain channels like that. So they would step back from it, and they might do things like in the middle range that would include doing webinars. And ideally, you're doing webinars uh, that are sponsored marketed and hosted by an association that gathers a ton of your prospects at once and there would you know generally you're going to get 3 to 600 participants at those things if you're a good speaker you're doing it for free but with every webinar that you're doing you're gathering another 3 to 600 email addresses who are going to be dropped into your system and will be sent very valuable insight. They won't be sold to, they will be sent insight. That would be an example of a mid-level one. And then, of course, there are the more lower-level ones, which we all had to or have to rely on as our business gets off the ground, You know, more like, more like some of the outbound things, advertising, going to trade shows. Uh, the key, though, is to recognize that how these fit on a spectrum and drop the ones that you can and move to the higher higher ones on this spectrum as soon as possible so that your efforts are as efficient as they possibly can be because you don't want to spend any more time than necessary. You also want to be really picky about your clients. You want to have an ideal client described not just in your head, not just for internal use as you evaluate opportunities, but you want to put that on your website too. You want prospects to self-select themselves out of the running before you get a chance to compromise with them. And I, one of the mistakes I see most digital firms making is they have too many and thus too small a client. I want them to have somewhere between 8 and 15, 8 and 20 clients at any given point. And digital firms in particular end up with 30, 40, 50 clients. And it, it, it's almost impossible to be wildly profitable with a client base that large. The odd thing is that that client number, you know, eight to 15 or 20, doesn't change with the size of the digital firm. It, what changes is the, the dollar volume of the individual client, um, but the number of clients that a, a firm has stays fairly consistent regardless of the size of the firm itself. Once somebody has done this, is the benefit to their firm just that they're getting more leads? I know you, you mentioned that even larger firms, maybe they're getting more money for this, or are there other benefits to um, developing this platform, other streams of revenue, or other ways to kind of package their unique knowledge? I know you mentioned a, a books. I mean, is this, does this create other opportunities for an agency owner outside of just doing their client service? For sure. I, the primary benefit is not easily quantifiable, and that's that they figure out a, a very defendable point of view. They figure out what they think, and, and all of a sudden they have a, a, a unique perspective on their work. That's the primary benefit of developing this thought leadership. But after that, for sure, you, you, the, the next benefit in my mind is that as you start to publish some of this, and regardless of platform, 
prospects begin to understand how you think. And they're more impressed than they otherwise otherwise would be because you are helping them by giving them this content for free. That You cross a boundary, though, when they hire you. And the boundary is that you are now going to charge them a ridiculous amount of money to apply it to their situation. But if they want to know how you think and how you apply this thinking to them without actually applying it, then all they have to do is read read your insight. But then like you like you alluded to, it's a really good point. That's that leads to so many other revenue opportunities. Most people that write books aren't making money from the book itself. Uh, but you can for sure and it's a great lead generation tool. You can do seminars with this stuff. Uh, you can pay, you can do paid webinars. I mean, the firms that are making a lot of money are not charging a high hourly rate. They're making money because they are packaging their IP and, and they're using value pricing to sell something that has nothing to do with the, the tick of a clock circling, you know, the, the, the hand circling a dial. It's, it's that, Listen, no, here's a book. It's $200. I'm not doing any extra work for this. I've already developed it. Or I'm doing a seminar and having 10 people here or 30 people here doesn't change the cost structure. I'm making more money that way. So it all feeds itself for sure. I, you know, And I'm really talking to folks who are not only um, experts, but they're entrepreneurial experts. They're, they're selling their thinking for a living. And it's, oh, what a great time to be alive. I mean, the opportunities in front of us are amazing. It's like nobody can hold us back. We're 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 either responsible for our own success or or holding ourselves back. I mean, there's still a fair bit of luck involved, but I I can't think of a better time to be alive to be an expert these days. That's awesome, David. I, I love I love the the optimism and the the push for folks that are thinking about this as a path for their own business of developing that expertise, developing that position, uh, using this as a way to get more leads, more valuable leads, shorten the sales process, get people that are more trained and educated on your way of thinking before they ever even contact you to work with you, which probably makes for a more positive client interaction just in general. So this has been really insightful. Thank you, David. Uh, are you ready You're for our, our lightning round? I don't know. We'll see, right? I'll try. <laughs> All right, man. This don't don't worry. It's it's uh it's it's pretty pretty uh, uh basic stuff here, but uh uh hopefully we can pull from uh not only your business experience, but maybe some of the other uh interesting things you talked about at the beginning of the interview. But what is the best advice you've ever received? Uh to be disciplined. I think that's the best business advice I've ever received. The big, the biggest difference between people who succeed and don't is discipline. It has very little to do with intelligence and um, insight. It's really about discipline. I think that's the best advice I've received. My dad was a good example of that as well. Very good. Which of your personal habits, uh, which is maybe kind of related, has contributed most to your success? I think it's courage. So I'm not afraid to... Uh, be sort of a, a watershed in life. So I'm okay if after people interact with me, they either uh, dislike me more or are drawn to me more. I don't mean as a person, I mean more as an expert and I'm okay with that. It's, uh, it, it's, I don't work hard at getting people to like me. It actually would be an impossible job. <laughs> so that's probably the, 
the the biggest strength I bring from a perspective standpoint, I would say. Yeah, I love that. Can you, uh, is there a tool or internet resource that you use uh, on a daily basis that you think our listeners would find valuable? Ah, now that's an interesting one. I, um, I use Ring Central uh, because it's just me at the firm and I travel a whole lot all around the world. And, and uh, the voice over IP system there is just second to none. I absolutely love it. It's, it's not a sexy tool, but it's a great way to be connected. So that's the one I use the most probably. Very good. And uh, besides your own, what book would you recommend and why? I would recommend uh, the Win Without Pitching Manifesto. Uh, Blair Inns is my podcast partner at uh, two, the numeral two bobs.com. And I think what pisses me off about the book is it sells better than mine does. Uh, but, but I, yeah, but, uh, and of course, this is not, you know, this isn't helping things, right? And telling people to buy it. But I, I love the fact that it's a really correct, the thing has just resonated with people because I think it addresses the, the frustrations of so many creatives who are trying to apply business principles to their thinking and feel stuck with that. So I love that book. It's about, I don't know, six or seven years old now. And it's, it's in, it's like it's fourth printing. It's been very, very successful in the marketplace from what Blair tells me, tells me. So that, that would be the one I would recommend. Well, see, I think back to your uh, treating your competitors more as uh, comrades and, uh, and and people that you can collaborate with and even promoting their books is part of your, uh, yeah. actually part of your actions. <laughs> so I think you're, you definitely uh, stand by your words. Uh, how can our audience find out more about you? Is there anything that you have for them to check out? Sure. Uh, so there's a microsite for the book itself. You can go to expertise.is. That's the best way to learn about the book itself. My uh, And there's also ways to uh, learn about speaking and so on. Uh, and my consulting practice is housed at recourses.com, R-E-C-O-U-R-S-E-S.com. Those will be your two best bets. Very good. Well, David C. Baker, thank you for stopping by our show today. Uh, we will make sure to link out to your book website, expertise.is, um, in our show notes, as well as your consulting practice. Thanks again for hanging out with us today. This has been super insightful. Thank you, Brent. I appreciate the great questions. Thanks for having me on the show. Very good. All right, guys, that is it for our episode of the Digital Agency Show this week. Stay tuned uh, for our episode next week. Got more great content coming to you. Until then, I'm Brent Weaver. Thanks again for tuning in to the Digital Agency Show. Before we close out, I wanted to check in on your answer to my question from the beginning of the episode. Are you stressed out, cash crunched, fed up with your business? Now, if you feel this way, you might think that you have a lead generation problem. Maybe that it's the area you live in or that this market has gotten too competitive. Maybe you think that your business can't be turned around. And I want you to think again. In my many years of experience, I can tell you now it's something much deeper that you're likely not even aware of yet. It's like a client who says they need a website, Facebook ads, or a mobile app when they don't even realize it's a deeper challenge that's blocking them from success. Now, if you'd like to find out what your deeper challenge is, then I want to invite you to apply for a strategy call where we're going to dig into those underlying issues in your business and get you moving forward like never before. The aha moments that you're going to have will shift the way you think forever, and you'll finally get the answers as to why your business hasn't taken off. The number one most important decision to rapidly grow your business starts by booking your YouGurus strategy call today. 
Go to yougurus.com slash apply to start the application process for this free call. Once again, go to yougurus.com slash apply to get started. Thanks again for tuning in. Join us next week for another episode of the Digital Agency Show.